Let's open up our Bibles together once again to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to read particularly verses 1 through 17. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you, as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receives. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up your hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have had inherited the blessing, 
he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Holy Father, Lord, we come to you this morning and we ask you, O God, that your spirit would teach us. Lord, that our hearts and our consciences would be tablets upon which your spirit would write the truths of what you want us to receive as your church in this passage. Lord, we are here only because you have called us. We, Lord, voluntarily gather ourselves, not by threat, Lord of sword, not by threat of imprisonment, but because you have effectually, Lord, revealed to us the truth of Jesus. And Lord, as you have shown us in this blessed epistle many glorious truths of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would help us now to approach this passage, this portion, and help us, O oh God, to see how that this amazing, free, sovereign grace that you have given us, which has compelled us to gather here today, Lord, is lived out in our lives. Bless us, help us, Lord. Protect us from the various ditches that historically have surrounded these passages. Keep us, we pray, O Spirit of God, on the straight and the narrow path of truth. We bless you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible, as you very quickly find out, contains much doctrine, much biblical truth. But it contains much more than just biblical truth. It contains exhortations. It contains teachings. And it contains application. This is why the Apostle Paul instructed the young Timothy, go teach and exhort. And oftentimes, as the people of God, we like to hear a lot of teaching. We like to hear a lot of facts. A lot of information. A lot of how it all works in the Bible. But we shrink back from exhortation. Because the exhortation is when the Holy Spirit uses the truths of the Bible. And with great precision, as the Spirit of God can only do, begins to make little cuts in our yet unsanctified areas of our lives. In fact, there are some people that will gravitate toward churches that have very little application or exhortation. Sure, they know much about the Bible. Sure, they can navigate through the Bible very well. They'll win all the Bible uh, B contests and, and the speed drills. And, and they can recite to you great uh, gymnastics and systematic theology and doctrine and so forth and so on. But they don't like application. They don't like to be exhorted. I heard a humorous, story, a humorous story one time where a preacher, following the apostolic pattern of teaching and preaching, 
received a letter one time after he had visited a a very large gathering, a very well-known, prominent evangelical gathering known for their biblical knowledge, right? And the letter politely but clearly told him, we don't need preachers like you here. Just tell us what the Bible means. Tell us what the Bible teaches, and we can take it from there. Now, you want to talk about humbling, as this man was telling the story. He says, nothing will deflate your ego as a minister quicker than that. After you pour your heart into a message and you believe that you are being used as an instrument of God to help the people of God, and then someone slips you a note like that, and to think that they were even writing it while you were preaching. After being humbled, he spent time in prayer and thinking and examining himself. And he kept coming again and again to this biblical truth that no, proclaiming God's Word, preaching God's Word, is teaching and exhortation. It's not one or the other. It's nonsensical to think that God's Word that has biblical truth presented in it, in it isn't to be aimed at the conscience, to be aimed at the heart. That's foolish thinking, friends. And so he wrote a note back to the person, and he said, Thank you uh, for your note, and I prayerfully have considered your note. And according to these passages, and he lists a bunch of passages, he says, I believe I'm standing in the tradition of the apostles. All of that to say, we come to verse 14 today. Beginning with verse 14, some say it began with verse 12. Uh, I handled it a little bit different. Uh, Some say verse 14 starts this shift, as if it were, in this epistle. It shifts now from showing us the glorious doctrine of justification in Christ to now exhorting us to gospel sanctification. Gospel sanctification. Beginning with verse 14 down to 17, you have a beginning of exhortations that are given to us as the church. He pauses and he does something in verses 18 down to 29, which is important for us to notice. And that is, I'm exhorting you. And today is a very heavy exhortation. I hope you saw that in verse 14. I'm exhorting you, oh, oh, but just as I was mercifully aware of your frailness as a runner, as you get weak and tired, let me remind you one more time in verses 18 to 29 of what a glorious superior kingdom that we're part of. Okay? And then he digs down, beginning with verse 1 in chapter 13, and proceeds with a series of directives of how to live out this glorious gospel that you profess and that you have received. That's what, he, that's what he does. So to begin this wrapping up process, and we indeed are entering into the last section of this epistle, he starts off with this exhortation in verse 14. Follow peace with all men. Some of your translations will say, um, follow peace with everyone. And holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now on the surface, brothers and sisters, in verse 14, which I'm just going to begin today to deal with, it is unarguably one of the weightiest 
verses in this entire epistle simply for the mere fact that it has this very clear and this very concise, sharply pointed statement. Look at it with me again. Without which no man shall see the Lord. And so this immediately ought to arrest our attention and say, what does this mean? There have been some who try to shave off the sharpness of this statement. And they'll present it in a way that says, well, what this means is uh, you won't really know the Lord on this side of glory in your walk with God. He'll, he'll kind of seem distant you know, from you. That's what this means. Um, they'll, they'll, they'll try to remove away what a five-year-old can read and understand what the text appears to be saying. If you do not follow peace with all men, if you do not follow or pursue holiness, you will not see the Lord. You will not see the Lord. I hope you agree, as we're going to get into it in a moment, that this ought to cause us to, um, to take a deep breath and say, um, I want to make sure that I rightly understand what this passage is teaching. Despite everything that's been said up until this point, despite all these glorious truths that we have just soaked and bathed in, we come to this passage, and it does not matter what he's saying, what you have said you believe, it does not matter what confession of faith you have been part of as a council writing. If you do not pursue peace with all men, the text appears to be saying, or pursue holiness, whatever that may mean, you will not see the Lord. And so it ought to stop us immediately and say, Oh God, I want to be open before you. I want to set aside all my preconceived notions about myself, about what I know, about what I understand, and I want to be taught by your word. And friends, let me just say, as I was sharing with a brother this week, as I've been meditating and and just waiting around in this passage, in connected passages, it would do us all great benefit if in our Bible devotions throughout every single year we come and we park here in verses 12 through 17. Just come here from time to time. After we get through this passage, and to be honest with you, I really don't know. You see the road map in your handout how long this is going to take. Uh, I know we're not going to get it all done today. I can tell you that. Uh, maybe, maybe next week. Maybe, maybe we'll have three passages just in this one verse because of the implication of what it is saying. And it would do, after we get done with that, take notes, use the sermon notes, save them, and come back to this text. Because what it will do for you, what it will do for us as a church, is it will prevent us, if we rightly navigate the path, from falling into the ditch, I often say it, of despair, which will destroy you, or the ditch of presumption, which equally will destroy you. Come again and again. To this passage. So how do I propose to you in your sermon notes that we ought to work our way through the passage? Well, first of all, what I want to do is just have us to just 
uh, get a high bird's eye view of the passage in its context and kind of how it's structured. What words are being used? What order of the words are being used? What's before it and what's after it? And then I want us to look at what's right on the surface, the duties or the responsibilities that it's setting forth, and that is the new covenant duty. I'm calling it new covenant duty, and we'll get to that, and I'll explain why I'm entitling it that way, new covenant duty of pursuing peace with all mankind. We'll begin to get into that today. Uh, we'll, we'll get out of the way, I think, today, the overall structure of it, and then we're going to start tiptoeing down into this first duty, and then we're going to look at the second duty that it's presenting pursuing biblical holiness and I'm saying biblical holiness for a reason all right and because there's you know there's unbiblical holiness uh, many good cults start off with unbiblical holiness all right um, and then we're going to look at the last part of the passage the non-negotiable the non-negotiable so that's kind of the roadmap and and you may see next week the the roadmap might, might add a turn uh, you know as, as I'm further thinking this through and studying this out we might have an added turn but I think that these are the the major stops you could say as we're getting on this bus to unpack this passage and to understand it, and our destination is to come out on the straight and the narrow path, avoiding the ditches. These are the main stops along the way. All right? Well, first of all, let's look at the structure of the passage. The structure of this passage. Well, it's very clearly that there's a command that begins here in verse 14. He has shared with us all of these glorious truths of justification. And he comes to verse 14. And as I said in my introduction, he continues this all the way to the end of the epistle with these exhortations, these commands. And so this passage begins that series of commands, beginning in verse 14. It's a command to do something. Brothers and sisters, no matter how hard one may try, they cannot escape that the thrust and the power which this passage sets off all the way to the end of chapter 13, that it demands of the reader immediate action. Do something. In your notes, look at how the different translations handle the uh, translation of this text, verse 14, which brings to the surface this command. Our authorized version says, follow peace with all men. The NIV, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. The ESV, listen to the intensity of it, strive, strive for peace with everyone. And I think the NASB 95 translation, I believe this is uh, the same as the new NASB, it hits the head, right, it hits the nail right on the head. Pursue, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Why do I say that about the NASB? Well, I give it to you in the Greek. Can I say something to you real quick about this in your sermon notes of the Greek? I was reading something this week by, uh, let's just say, a man who has a lot of letters behind his name. And he was encouraging pastors of being very careful about using Greek and using the original languages in their sermons. And you know what his reason was? You have to remember your church context. You may have in your church a lot of farmers and mechanics. And the immediate thing I thought to myself, this guy obviously does not know any farmers or mechanics who got some grease under their fingernails. Because usually, they're about ten times smarter than the guy up teaching or preaching. I mean, they have the ability to look and to understand. No, they don't understand all the syntax. They didn't take Greek class and things like this. But if you give them the meaning of the words, you give them the structure of the words, 
They can understand it. They're not imbeciles, you know. Perhaps it's that kind of thinking that's gotten us into the state we are. So I take his, I, thank you, I take his uh, advice with a grain of salt and, and I trust that you appreciate that I'm giving you why I believe that this whole structure of this passage begins with the command. Why? Because look what the Greek means. It means to make or to run or to flee, to put to flight, to drive away, to run swiftly in order to catch a person or a thing. But notice more importantly here, notice its, trans, its translational occurrences. It's translated more times persecute than any other way. This Greek works. So you get the idea here that this is an intense call and command. Right? I mean, you don't just half-heartedly persecute someone. <laughs> when you're setting out to persecute someone, you've got a plan, you've got a method, you've got a strategy, and you're pretty motivated to do it. Right? That's what we're seeing here. This exhortation's structure begins with this verb that is strongly emphasizing not only taking action, but taking action that is very targeted, purposeful, and swift. And not to bore you too much, it's a present active imperative, meaning he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he writes this in this language with full expectation that it is going to get started. So he's writing it in a way to where he's saying, I'm writing this and I expect no one to deny this. I expect no one not to begin to take some sort of action. That's the thrust coming in to the structure of this command. It's not a suggestion, but rather it is one clear command that you and I need to begin some sort of motion. We need to begin some sort of action. We need to pursue. Pursue. I think the NSB has it the best, especially with the connotation of persecution. The, the authorized version follow piece is kind of like you're you know, kind of just back there following along. No, you're to pursue it. You're to be after it. Those who would have originally read this would have understood that they were being told to do something, that this was a command. In other words, now that you've been reschooled in the glorious gospel that you formerly heard and received and you still profess, now that you understand you're running the same glorious race as the Old Testament saints, now that I've tenderly acknowledged your frailty and that you need to be strengthened, you now need to get down to the business of heeding to this command. That's what he's saying. So the structure of it starts off with an unavoidable call to do something. But what were they to do? What action were they to start taking? Well, to start with, because remember, this is just the first two in a long list, all the way to the end of chapter 13. He gives them, in this passage, two, I'm calling, new covenant duties. So the structure is a command with two duties. And those two duties we see are very simply, whatever they mean, that's what we're going to unpack it later, is to pursue peace with all mankind and pursue holiness. Some of your modern translations will translate this sanctification. And so whatever this may mean, the structure of this passage is very straightforward and very clear in that these are the two specific directions, these are the two specific paths which they are begin to move toward and we today are continue to live in our own day and age. Now, think for a moment, brothers and sisters. These commands 
these two duties specifically in our verse 14 that we're going to spend some time on. They are given in the context of the new covenant announcement. They are given in the context of the glorious reality that you've been born again. You've been set free from the condemning law that held so many people in the old covenant bound up and trapped in. You've been set free from that. It's all through Jesus Christ. But notice the context, because the context warrants that we understand if they're given in the new covenant context, then they're new covenant duties. They're new covenant duties. In other words... The overall context of this epistle demands that we accept the fact that those who say they are followers of Jesus, those who say, I am part of His blessed covenant of grace purchased only by His blood, they all who profess that are duty-bound to take action to pursue with regards to these, these two specific areas that are being treated in this verse. No one claiming to be a Christian can excuse themselves from this command as given in the new covenant context and as new covenant responsibilities. It is true, and we have done much work in this. In many places, this blessed epistle has proven that under the new covenant, we're no longer bound to perform many of the duties under the old covenant. But here we can clearly ascertain the teaching is that we are bound to pursue these two. We are bound to pursue these two. There is no system of theology, even though some cleverly try to uh, invent it, that will excuse us as the new covenant people of God to say, that doesn't apply to me. Okay, well, if it doesn't apply to you, then I guess you're in a different covenant arrangement. You're not under the new covenant arrangement that is preceded by Hebrews 1 uh, 1 through 11 that comes up into this point. The structure of this passage commanded that they were to do something. That's clear. And also what exactly it was they were to be doing as New Covenant disciples. Pursue peace and and also pursue holiness. But we see from verse 15, the first part that is, that they were to exercise these duties with a certain necessary frame of mind. Look at verse 15, which harmonizes with our understanding of the word follow or pursue. You don't pursue or follow without looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. There's the frame of mind. You see it in verse 15. So that's the structure. You're called to command to do this. Uh, uh, You know, follow, pursue. It's a command. There's two duties in this command. And you do, you're to do it with the frame of mind of looking diligently. Some of the modern translations translate it, see to it. And the original Greek cares with the idea to look well after something. To look upon something carefully. To beware of neglect. So that's the structure. That surrounds now us as we come in and we want to try to understand what does it mean to pursue peace? What does it mean to pursue holiness? Which without no man shall see the Lord. It is a command for me. It is a duty I'm bound to as a blood recipient to Jesus Christ. And, and, and even more importantly... The, 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 the ending and non-negotiable 
is that I'm to be carefully examining this because without it, no one will see the Lord. That's what we begin to tiptoe into the first duty to understand. Pursue peace with all mankind. Pursue peace with all mankind. So let's begin to consider... Now that we understand this is a command, now that we understand we're the new covenant church, now that we understand this is a duty for us, what does pursue peace with all mankind mean? Before we even do that, notice in your sermon notes, there is, before he begins to exhort them, an assumed prerequisite that they indeed are new covenant participants. There's an assumed prerequisite that they indeed are born again. That their hearts, their lives, their thinking, their worldview has been changed miraculously by the Holy Spirit. Prior to understanding the specific duty of pursuing peace, we must first, brothers and sisters, fully appreciate the fact that he is writing with this assumed prerequisite that they're all born-again believers. Or that is, that they themselves have been granted peace with God through new covenant salvation. He's, he's, he has this assumed prerequisite by their profession that they were once enemies at war with God and they know something of what it means to be brought into sweet peace and fellowship with God. It is entirely useless to call dead people, to exhort dead people to what only the Holy Spirit can do in someone's life. That's the point. And we need to appreciate that point. He's exhorting the church of God with the assumed prerequisite that with your lips there's a reality in your heart. Turn over to 9. Chapter 9. Turn over to chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. He's assuming that they know something of what he taught them already of a peace of conscience. The context here is, of course, the superiority of Christ's blood over the old covenant sacrificial animals. And he says in verse 13, If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled, the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered unto himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, we looked at this in past sermons as we turn back to our text. We looked at this, and the intent of this teaching regarding the superiority of Christ's sacrificial blood was not only to clarify for them how they were permanently justified, but also, remember the intention of that teaching, was to grant them that peace of conscience that only a newborn Christian can possess. Brothers and sisters, think with me for a moment. Those of you who have experienced this peace of conscience, those of you who have uh, uh, been made aware of how you were an enemy against God in your willful ignorance of the depravity of your flesh, loving your sin, justifying your sin, excusing yourself in your sins... 
consider with me how it is that you cannot, I hope you would agree, you cannot fully put into words, you cannot fully articulate the efficacy or the overall benefits of what it means in Christ to be at peace with God. You you just can't put it into words. The blessing to your soul that it is. The benefit to your conscience it is. You can try to explain it to someone, but without the Holy Spirit doing that work in their heart, they're kind of looking at it and going, okay, I kind of get it, I kind of understand the proposition. Oh, but the man, the man who knows himself, The man who sees Jesus on the cross and the nails, if it were, with spiritual eyes in his palm, understanding and knowing by the Holy Spirit's operation upon their heart, I did that. I killed him. But yet he, while I was a sinner in my filth and guilt, loving every minute of it, covered in my blood, He died for me. He died for me. A wretched, God-hating sinner. And all throughout the New Testament is this hallmark of this glorious sacrificial love and grace of Christ on the cross which produces in the life of someone who the Holy Spirit has pricked with that truth of themselves and his glorious crosswork, the hallmark of the New Testament is, is that that man and that woman is what? Humbled. They're humbled, amen? Pride is dethroned. Self-exaltation is abased. And they're knocked down a couple denominators, Amen? Now, brothers and sisters, this is the biblical illustration that we have of every single individual that comes to the cross of Christ. There is not one exception where someone comes to the foot of Calvary, to the foot of the cross, with the inclination in the back of their mind, I'm better than so-and-so, or I'm pretty good, I just need a little bit of help to get to the finish line. If that's your conversion, anyone who may hear this message or anyone in this room today, you are sadly deceived. Biblical conversion, while it may look different in different people's lives, carries with it that fundamental denominator that it humbles a man. It humbles his pride. And why is that so important? Why is that so important? Because it's only until a person's view of themselves has been ground into the dust and they see the mercy and the love and the peace that God extends to them through the cross of Jesus Christ in the gospel can they even begin to take one baby step toward being at peace with all mankind. So he's writing this with an assumed prerequisite that your profession remember he's writing to professing believers the visible church is a true profession so now with that out of the way we can begin to try to understand what it means that I have been humbled this way at times that pride flares up from time to time and God humbles me back down but yes it's true Uh, I am a sinner 
saved by grace. Or in 1 Timothy 1.15, as Paul says, I am the worst of them all. Now he says to you, I want you. I want you who have been humbled, who know the truth of your Savior. Move forward in the first exhortation is to be at peace with all mankind. You know, I was thinking about it on the ride in this morning. Fly way high with me here. All of this doctrine in Hebrews 1 through 11, coming up to this point, all of this glorious didactic truth is intended to make you and me be at peace with all everyone around us. To pursue holiness. We'll get to that eventually. And, and what is that, honestly, brothers and sisters? In just a nutshell. To be conformed into the image and the likeness of Jesus when He walked the earth. I say this often, friends, and it exercises my soul deeply, and it is a fundamental truth, and let us never lose sight of it. We can know the Bible. We can recite the Bible. And we can have all the T's dot or all the T's crossed and the I's dotted. But it is nonsensical to believe that that is not expected to be changed in the heart of someone and lived out. And so what he does now is he gives us these things that we can look at and say, I'm not pursuing peace. I'm not pursuing no holiness. What is going on in my heart? Because I've been humbled. And yes, I profess Jesus has done it all. And so have I drifted? Have I become calloused? Because I cannot honestly say that these are truthful of me. Well, it begins with this assumption that they are truly new covenant participants. And so now he very boldly, unashamedly calls them to new covenant duties. Assuming their profession is credible. The inspired writer calls them to exercise their humility by pursuing peace. Notice with me, in a non-discriminatory fashion. All men. It really does mean that. Some of your translations will have everyone. It means all mankind. Our pursuit of this new covenant duty, which is peace, is non-discriminatory. Now, I want you to remember, beloved, the original context here. They were being gossiped about. They were being lied about. They were, by their friends and social acquaintances, being misrepresented to other people. And some of them had physical persecution coming upon them. And he's telling them, yes, 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 even in this context, you, you are supposed to emulate the reflection of your master and seek to be at peace with all of these people who are doing this to you. That's the context. 
The peace that they were to promote and pursue was even supposed to be extended to those who were not only enemies of Christ, but their own personal enemies. Now, what do we mean by peace? Well, most of you know what this means, but you see in your notes, uh, the Webster Dictionary applies the definition of peace in three ways, and I think this is a good synopsis. It summarizes what we mean here when we're talking about pursue peace. What does peace mean? Um, What are we talking about? To be at peace or to be reconciled, to live with others in harmony. To make peace as parties who are at war or at variance with one another. To hold, this is a very hard one, to hold the peace or to maintain the peace with our silence. To suppress one's thoughts, not to speak. And and James speaks much of this, doesn't he? That with our tongues, great fires, destroying fires are set. Now I think we can really appreciate why there is this necessary prerequisite of our changed heart. Because unless there's a changed heart, no one's going to want to do this. It goes against every inclination of ourselves. Uh, Pride, if it is still left unchecked within the heart, will not take one inch in pursuing any of these things. Part of peace with others. We see there is to be silent. But 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 it's not silence that is silence held begrudgingly. Well, I'm going to hold my peace. I'm going to sit on it for the sake of peace, right? Um, So that there's harmony. But inside, I'm not at peace. Inside, I got my hands around that person's throat, right? But I'm the pious one, and I'm going to, you know, be quiet here and make sure there's harmony. That's not the peace being talked about here. That's not the peace being talked about here. The peace that's being talked about here is the same peace that God extended you through Christ while you were His enemy. And guess what? When He says He forgives your sins from the east, from the west, He really does forget them. He forgets them, He forgives them, and He forgets them. And so the peace that we're to pursue with all mankind is that same extension of peace. And we'll get to that later when we see how it looks. It is that willingness to truly want to live as much as possible. You see the road map uh, in the sermon notes. We're going to get to that, I can already tell, next week, that there's some boundaries in this pursuit of peace. There are some times, brothers and sisters, where you will seek with all of your sanctified ability to pursue peace, and there's going to be boundaries, roadblocks, where you cannot take another step, because now if you take another step in pursuing peace with that person, you're actually going to be committing sin. Right? And we'll look at that next week. But today, what we want to see here is that it's non-discriminatory with everyone around us. And now put that in the context of our culture today. Put that in the context of our culture today. Do we honestly speak the truth in love? Do we really do that? Or do we speak the truth with the edge to win a debate and to fight and to prove someone wrong? Do we really speak the truth understanding that I once was that person as they are? And so as a broken-hearted shepherd who has a sheep off somewhere, you want to, you know what I'm saying, say, listen, that's poison berries. My heart actually is broken. And we'll get to that later, what this looks like. Uh, there has to be compassion. 
There has to be a sincere desire that I want this person to know Jesus and what I've come to know in the peace of God. It is, brothers and sisters, difficult for us to live at peace with all mankind around us, especially when they press in, and especially when they challenge us, and especially when they attempt to attack the truth of our God. But to equip us and to help us a little bit, to even begin to tiptoe into what it looks like, I want us to look at Colossians. Turn, turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to go here. You know, one thing that is a train wreck is to begin to think that we approach how to do something with these nice, tidy, ten-point steps. You know, ten steps to pursue peace. And that's obviously not going to be the solution in this case here. Because a lot of times in the Christian life, pursuing peace... Pursuing holiness. It is not, brothers and sisters, this nice, cookie-cutter, clean way, right? That you just follow, and if you follow, it'll all work out. That's not always the case. That's not always the case. And so when we look here at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, what do we see? Look at it. You have there a list, brothers and sisters, of things that we are supposed to be focusing. Look at, jump down to verse 12. Kindness. Forbearance. These are the things, and notice that how it talks about being clothed with these things. We put them on as if they're garments. I think this is the simplest way to understand how we are to begin to walk in pursuing peace with others. I have seven of them that I'm bringing out of this passage in Colossians 3, beginning with verse 12. And let's just do the first one here, and then I think we may get to the second one, and then we'll have to wrap it up and continue on next week, okay? But what we're seeing here is a call and understanding that we're to have peace with all mankind. Our hearts have been changed by the, 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how do we do this? What does it look like? Well, remember, he's writing in Colossians chapter 3 also to others who have known of the cross of Christ. And we see here in verse 12 that there is to be compassion. We must be clothed with compassion. Compassion is a deeply felt emotional pity for a suffering person. We have no hope to live at peace with other men around us, to pursue harmony with other men around us, if we don't have biblical compassion. Being able to recognize and look at someone and sympathize with their pain, their hurt, and their suffering. Three ingredients to Christian compassion actually recognizes the suffering of the person. Did they get themselves in it? Yeah, probably. Did someone else cause it to them? Could, have, could be. But that's not the point. The point of biblical compassion and desiring to be at peace with everyone around us is this first step of seeing their hurt and their suffering. I truly exhibit that. I truly feel pity toward them. 
The second ingredient, besides seeing their suffering, recognizing, understanding, appreciating the depth of their suffering and hurt, is having a true tender pity in response to it. A tender response to it. And thirdly, a a, a genuine desire to alleviate that suffering if it's possible. Listen to how one commentator I come across put this. In our pursuit of being at peace with all men around us, we have to have these character developments, these heart attitudes being outlined here in Colossians 3. And in compassion, he says, the Christian then, in Colossians 3 he's looking at, is to be a man of pity. A man who cannot look upon suffering or need or distress without having a sort of grief and pity, pity piercing his own heart. And then he makes this very clear statement. There could be no more complete opposites than callousness toward those who suffer and biblical Christianity. You know, sometimes the wall that's preventing us from being at peace with those around us is because we don't have any compassion or we lack compassion. We, we can say compassionate things with our lips. And does this prick you, brothers and sisters? It pricks me when I was reading this. You know? But I really don't have the compassion in a real deep-seated, inward way. I say I have compassion because I know that's the right thing to say. But do I feel the compassion? Do I feel and really am and moved with the pity I have for that person? And isn't this true? It's one thing to show compassion to those who've been wronged by others. But what about those who suffer because of their own sins? Are we able to really be at peace with all others when they cause their own grief and suffering? I think that the testimony of God's compassion revealed in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, particularly there in verses 16 through 20, where it's very clear they had provoked God. They had caused their own calamity. And he recognizes that. And he still says in the text that he is a Lord of compassion and wants to make peace with them. They're causing it to themselves. Brothers and sisters, we have got to have that element of Christian New Covenant character. If it's grown cold, and how can it not grow cold in the context in which we live? How can it not get a little frigid for any of us who are on social media with this constant piranha attacking upon what we hold dear in our families and in our churches? But at the end of the day, remember... You cannot expect anything less than that from a heart that has not been changed. We have got to have a broken heart toward these people. They are lost as the day is long, just as I was. There has to be, God, give me a real brokenness and a compassion to feel for their suffering and the depravity of their sins and their blindness. You, but but let me let me warn you. If you start praying that way, 
be ready because the Holy Spirit's going to bring along other things that's going to be calling you to go into places that are very uncomfortable for you. Very uncomfortable of actually approaching people who right now you're not at peace with. That's them. I'm over here in my group, right? Holy Spirit's going to start saying, no, you need to help them. You need to love them. You need to share Jesus with them. Wow. Maybe, just maybe, as we're coming into this long stretch of the insection of Hebrews, this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. Getting you firm on the gospel, how you've been changed. And then, exciting you to not just hold it all up into yourself, but to pursue peace with everyone around you. That's the first step. We haven't gotten to holiness yet. Next week, we're going to consider some other things from Colossians 3 that will help us, uh, and, I, and I pray, challenge us. I said, brothers and sisters, at the beginning of the message today, you know, it's about doctrine and exhortation. And I hope that this, the next couple of weeks, exercises you like it's exercised me. I, I, I admittedly have grown cold in some of these things. Once was a buyer, right? But circumstances, societal contacts, whatever, whatever, stresses in life, you know, these things happen. And that's why I said in my introduction, it would be very healthy for us, very healthy for our spiritual state to come afresh after we get done looking at these over the next couple Sundays to this passage and read it and say, oh, Spirit of God, aflame my heart once again in these truths. Oh, I do love the lost. I do care for these people all around me, every mankind. I want them to know the peace that I know. I want to live at peace with them and, and, and share with them, etc., etc. And we'll get in down more in what the pursuing peace looks like. But we have got to come to these new covenant character traits of a transformed heart outlined in Colossians 3 to help us to begin to take the steps. And as we pray these things and as we start taking those steps... We'll discuss a little more that this is the mindset I'm supposed to have. And this is a warning over here. And that's a warning over there. Let me be a wise New Covenant disciple seeking to live out this glorious call to live out my Christian faith and to grow in sanctification. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we, Lord, pause and Lord, just quiet our hearts before you. And and we ask, Lord, that you will begin today in this passage. And then, Lord, again next Sunday or, or just however long it takes. God, for us, Father, who are here today. And, Lord, we profess that we have changed lives. We have changed hearts. Lord, we have been humbled by your gospel. God, I pray that you would teach us, that you would instruct us of the purpose, the, the fundamental purpose, Lord, 
of us being yet here on earth, us yet here running the race, us yet here still waiting for our Christ, our Lord Jesus to return as he promised, sojourning on this celestial ball as all of those in chapter 11, the ultimate purpose. What is it, Lord? You have transformed us. Oh, God. Oh, Spirit of God. Help us from becoming stagnant. Breathe life afresh into our souls. Give us, we pray, that vision of the lively hope of Jesus Christ that you once did. Oh, and help us. Help us as we are caged in. We are so anemically shackled by the remaining corruptions of our flesh to pursue, to swiftly pursue. And, O Spirit of God, just as you pulled back the dark, thick curtains of deception, Lord, would you come? And would you, O Spirit of God, do that in our lives again? doesn't have to be glorious and sensational. Oh, Holy Spirit, in your modesty, deal with each one of us in our own individualistic way. But nonetheless, move us, compel us, prompt us to pursue according to that which you are outlining here in this passage and a purposed for all of us as your new covenant disciples. We thank you and we trust that you are the same today as you were yesterday and as you will be forevermore. And so we wait prayerfully and we wait expectantly. Spirit of God to blow to blow upon each and one of us to live for our Savior we bless you and we thank you in Jesus holy and precious name Amen